Eric Holder, the new attorney general, recently called us a nation of cowards for not openly discussing race. While today on The Graduates, Lisa Marie Rollins takes us to task on race and adoption. Stay tuned. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Cal. You're tuned, University of California and listener-supported KALX Berkeley 90.7. I'm your host, Emily Ellers, a fellow graduate student. This week, we'll be speaking with Lisa Marie Rollins, a graduate student in the Department of African Diaspora Studies. Lisa Marie studies transracial adoption and diasporic black women's bodies. She is the founder and executive director of AFAD, Adopted and Fostered Adults of the African Diaspora, and was recently recognized as one of Colorline Magazine's Innovators of the Year for her work with AFAD. It's good to have you with us, Lisa Marie. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Well, let's start with your dissertation work. Um, but for our listeners who may not know what transracial adoption is, could you explain that first? Transracial adoption is any time that a parent of one race adopts a child of another race. And my work focuses specifically on the um, interactions between white parents and African or African-American children. Does it ever work the other way where African-Americans will adopt white babies? How common is that? It is common. The thing that I've been discovering in my research is that it's more common in kinship adoptions rather than a formalized adoption. So it'll be a friend of the family. So in much the way that I think um, African-Americans adopt with through kinship, I think that they're doing the same thing, not only with same race children, but with white children, Asian children, and basically from friends of the family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, there are lots of issues surrounding adoption in general, but how is transracial adoption different? Or what are the, some of the sensitivities that come along with transracial adoption? One of the things that I think that's interesting about this question around, you know, well, what about African-American families that adopt white children, do you feel like that is a problem or do you feel like they need to have special training to raise white children? And my answer to that really comes from thinking, asking folks to really think about how race and blackness and white privilege function in the United States. And for African-Americans and really Africans globally, there's a way that moving through the world as a black body has a particular impact on the people that you're interacting with and then also how they interact with you. And so on a daily basis, you're forced to think about yourself as a racialized body. And so if you're a child and you're moving through a world that is an all-white world and people are reacting to you in a particular way or talking to you or having reactions about you and you don't know what those reactions are, where they're coming from, or why people are treating you in a certain way, and on top of that, no one's explaining it to you, then that's a problem. How is it that you are going to be able to think about yourself as a black person, and even in a positive way, think about yourself as a black person, or even as a complex whole human being, as blackness being one piece of your identity? How can you even think about that if no one is giving you the tools to be able to do that? And so one of the things when I'm training parents, I like to talk to them about, you know, creating the toolbox and being able to 
not be afraid to talk about race and being able to be humble enough to make mistakes and also be able being humble enough to step back. And I think that for African-American families who might adopt white children or Latino children, first of all, I think that that situation is much less of a formal situation if it's happening at all. But I do think that African-Americans walk through the world already with an understanding of what it means to be a racialized body on a daily basis. And so being able to translate that information, I think that there's going to be a different level of comfort. There's going to be a different level of education and all that, you know, AFAD and other adoptees, whether or not, not even African-American adoptees, even Korean adoptees, Vietnamese adoptees are all saying the same thing that it really is about acknowledging that there's differences, claiming it, educating yourself, and making sure that you have the tools to prepare your child to walk through the world. And Lisa Marie Rollins, what about transracial adoption in mixed race identity? Well, I think what's really interesting is that for a very, very long time, I think that the transracial adoption community has been embraced by the mixed race community, and which I think is a real positive thing on the one hand because it does bring a um, you know recognition to transracial adoption, and it also allows discussions around um, race and hybrid identity to emerge. But one of the difficulties with being um, in in being inside or sort of underneath the umbrella of mixed race identity is that not all transracial adoptees are mixed race and may or may not identify with a mixed race experience. And so one of the things that I'm thinking about is the way that trying to separate the notion of race and culture, because I think that people utilize these words interchangeably and don't necessarily, you know, um, think, you know, race, culture, ethnicity, all that stuff means the same thing and aren't really critical when they're thinking about the ways in which culture impacts us as opposed to the way race impacts us. And for as a black woman who's been raised by a white family, I didn't, even though I am a mixed race black woman, my experiences were not experiences that in the Bay Area are really common where folks are can claim their mixed race identity. My experience was a very black experience and was very singular in in thinking in the development of my racialized identity if that makes any sense. So mm-hmm. it does. Yeah. But so what we're trying to so one of the things that the work that I'm doing looks at the differences in mixed race identification, politics, and transracial adoption. Can you lay them out or begin to lay them out? Yeah, I think um one of the interesting things that I've noticed is the the Bay Area is really an interesting place geographically when you're thinking about mixed race identity because there is such a large population of mixed race and multiracial children and adults that live here. And recently within, I would say, the past 10 years, there's also been a large rise of African adoption into um of international adoption and including African adoption. By white people or by? By white people. Okay. So one of the interesting things about the, the question of adoption and making connection with your children, because it's always one of the sort of concerns about adoption from 
the outside world and also I think in sort of the discourses around, you know, the old school discourses around adoption is, are you going to have the same connection with your child that you have with a biological child? Are you going to be able to have some connection? And parents are very concerned about this and, and rightfully so. And so one of the ways that I think that white parents attempt to try to create connection with their transracially adopted children who might be mixed race or might not is to put them into mixed race identity groups so that they can understand, so they can have a connection with the sort of white cultural side of themselves or the white biological thread that might go through their body. And so, and I find this really problematic because I think that it really, um, first of all, Reinscribes like the idea that white people are the ones that are constructing um, um, questions around race and gender, and they and continuing to shape it in a way that is beneficial to them. And it really, I think, plays into the whole notion of you know white privilege and white supremacy that we all already know. But but it becomes problematic then for the child when attempting to assert their own identity as an African-American or as an Asian-American, where then do does the child end up fitting in the family if the link that you have with your child is only that link about the, the white cultural side of yourself and you're not necessarily acknowledging blackness, you're not ne- necessarily acknowledging you know, being Korean, being Vietnamese. And I think that what happens is that children end up denying pieces of themselves and struggling with their identity because it's a loyalty question. Here are people who have loved you, taken care of you, support you. How then do you negotiate asserting an identity that may cause them uncomfortable? Well, what's the solution? Is transracial adoption bad? Well, one of the things that is really complicated about that question. Let me just say, first of all, that we, you know, as adult adoptees who are scholars and folks who've been working in the um, field around adoption who are adoptees get that question all the time. And, you know, is it bad? Is it good? And um, actually, it's really, I think that that's the wrong question. I think that the question is, what are the circumstances that are allowing these children to be available for adoption? Why is it that we're not rethinking our conception of adoption, changing it from removal from a home and inserting into another home? Or why aren't we thinking about adopting an entire family? Why aren't we thinking about adopting an entire community? And I, I see this also, the patterns of um, privilege, I think, are really played out in the same way in uh, international adoption when we can see, I, and I hate to use the citation, but, you know, when we see Madonna going over to a country that doesn't even allow adoption and go, and going in and asserting herself as a money individual and being able to remove a child from a home who isn't even, like, technically and I, I say technically, quote unquote, it, an orphan. And so that's, so that's one of the issues. And then also to rethink the idea of orphan. What does it mean to be an orphan and how are we defining that? And how then does it fit within the discourse of adoption that exists today? Because that conversation has a major impact on the ways that legislation is um, 
getting written. You're listening to University of California and listener-supported KALX Berkeley 90.7. This is The Graduates, where we spend a half an hour every Monday from 12 to 12.30 speaking with graduate students about their research. Today I'm speaking with Lisa Marie Rollins, a graduate student in the African Diaspora Department and Executive Director of AFAD. Now, Lisa Marie, where does AFAD fit in with this? AFAD is Adopted and Fostered Adults of the African Diaspora This is an organization that I began, founded in 2006. In 2003, I believe it was, I started a blog called A Birth Project. And the blog was really my attempt to begin to talk about my issues with transracial adoption on a personal level and then also to um, bring my um, I had I was in my third year here in the African Diaspora Studies Department, and I started to see the connections between theorizing about diaspora and thinking about my own identity as a black woman in a transracial adoptive family. And I began the birth project with a couple uh, fold purposes. One, of course, to talk about my personal search and reunion with my family birth family, but then also, again, to explore the ideas of blackness and identity and womanhood. I started writing my blog, and I began to get this huge response from people. And it was really exciting and really surprising that there was this entire community of adult adoptees that I had no idea was out there. And began to be in communication, and there's uh, many, many amazing bloggers that have been doing work for a couple years before I came along, and that it was just really exciting to be connected and to have them say, yes, I, I feel what you're feeling, I understand, I, you're uh, echoing, you know, themes that have happened in my life, my, you know, my family did that exact same thing when I went home, and just really, really validating my experience, and also the incredible complexity of having a contentious relationship with people who you love so much. And, but as I was going along, I began to realize that all of the people who I was communicating with were Korean adoptees or Vietnamese adoptees. And only recently, I would say within the past five to 10 years, a group of um, Chinese adoptees that have reached adulthood because um, China has been a really, really um, (laughs) large supplier of children to the United States in the past um, 10 years. So the people who have reached adulthood are and who have had a community for the past 10 to 15 years are really Korean and Vietnamese adoptees, of course, because of the Korean War and then the Vietnam War. Of course, I began to ask, you know, where are the black people? Where are the African adoptees? Where are, are there any African adoptees that are of age, that are over 18, that can, that are out of their homes, that are, you know, struggling with the same kinds of issues that I feel like we all struggle with and um, putting the lens of race and the lens of blackness on it. So I started the group. I hooked up with um, Julia Chinre Apara, who is otherwise known as Julia Sudbury, who's a professor at Mills College. And she 
is one of the editors of an amazing collection of essays called Outsiders Within. It's the first collection of essays by all adoptees and written by and for transracial adoptees. We connected and began to talk about not only the sort of localized politics of adoption in the United States and then also, of course, Alameda County and the large number of black children that are in the foster care system, but also the global politics of how in Sudan or Ethiopia, many of the areas that have been war-torn are folks are going in adopting children and you know bringing them to the United States and raising them here. And the connection between thinking about, again, like the circumstances of how children become available and the overall, I think, connection of the destruction of the black family became something that we really solidified for us in the few conversations that we began to have, which is one of the reasons why we chose to include foster adults and foster care alumni in the organization. There has for a long time been a disconnect between folks who are adopted and folks who are in the foster care system and grow up and are emancipated from the foster care system. And we wanted to bring these two conversations together because they're in the foster care system. You know, the the whole goal is to be adopted. The whole goal is to be good and be do follow the rules and do make yourself adoptable. And in the adoption world, the whole discourse is to be grateful that you were adopted and to not question anything about your placement and to be thankful that you weren't in foster care and that you didn't get left there. And so we really, really felt like the people who were creating the discourses around there were not foster care alumni and were not adoptees. And we were really um, striving to have these two populations come together and have a conversation. And so that's how the organization began, really just from my own personal need to make connections. But now we've really, we have lofty, lofty goals. We are um, in the process of developing our programming. We're becoming incorporated this year as a nonprofit. And we are developing education programs where we're hoping to provide continuing education for social workers from a social welfare perspective, but also from a cultural studies perspective, because we really feel like, of course, from my perspective as an African diasporic scholar, I really feel like as I've been doing my work, all of the work that is done around transracial adoption is centered in social science, in psychology, sociology, and there isn't, and while there might be a racial lens that's put on it, it's not necessarily a cultural studies perspective, which I feel like has a wider understanding that includes like, particularly in the African diasporic sense, the way that I'm looking at it is to place it within the, a larger African diasporic history. And trying to say that this population of adoptees, this population of foster care, kinship adoption is part of the African diasporic experience, not only in the United States, but across the globe. And the ways that families are formed and the ways that uh, identity is thought through is 
really, really part of our history and something that needs to be included in the way that we're thinking about the future. You're tuned to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Cal. Today we're speaking with Lisa Maria Rollins, a graduate student in the African Diaspora Studies Department. Now, the organization you work for is primarily dedicated to adult adoptees, but do you work at all children in the same situation? For the past two years, I was working for an organization, as were other adoptee AFAD members, and some of our board members have been working with an organization here in Oakland that has a group of about 35 transracially adopted youth, and we've been doing programming with them for about two years, and A lot of that work has been really just providing a social network and, you know, going ice skating and hanging out, having picnics. But also we've done a lot of work around thinking about race, thinking about adoption, providing survival tools. And we really see a lot of the same uh, patterns, a lot of the same problems that transracially adopted youth are having with their families and in school and in their communities that we had when we were growing up, which also is another indicator that the work that we're doing is really needed because, again, not to continue to reference the Bay Area, but it really is this place where, you know, it's a hotbed of liberalism and folks really, really feel that they're not racist, that they have a clear understanding of um what it means to be a racialized body in the United States and with the whole Obama being president and, you know, now we're supposedly in this post-racist society that somehow is going to have a magical effect on the rest of the people of color in the United States. It's really interesting to watch the children have the same issues that I had when I was 13, And the same issues around race, the same issues in my school being one of the only few people of color and not being able to discuss what that means when I go home with my parents or walking down the street with my mother and having people question who I am or just even the struggle of dating and what that is, like what is it going to mean if I bring a black man home and my parents have no black friends. They don't bring any other black or Asian or Latino people into our home. And, you know, I want to date a black man or a black woman. And what does that mean if I do that? And I think that the kids that were the youth that we're working with are struggling with all of these things. And then, of course, just then what it means also to be a black man or a black woman walking through Oakland or San Francisco. So the work that we're doing with youth is a lot of leadership work, community building, but also providing space for them to vocalize the experiences that they're having. Mm -hmm. Earlier you touched on um, some of the links between um, slavery and transracial adoption now. You Mm -hmm. spoke of emancipating foster Mm-hmm. children p- children in foster care can you elaborate on that or can we talk mm-hmm. more about some of the similarities or it, well, it's not is it modern day slavery one of the things i'm trying to do in my dissertation is to create a timeline of the way that adoption emerges in not only in the african american 
histories, but also in a in diasporic history. And so, but there's a direct connection between the way that slavery created a population of children that didn't have families or didn't have parents, and then that connection to how homes for black children began in the early 1900s. And so some of that work, I'm just doing research on that right now, but also making that link within the larger history of adoption in the United States. But also to answer the question about whether or not it has a link to modern day slavery or human trafficking, uh, basically, is, uh, yeah. And one of the things... If, I don't know if you remember in November 2007, there was this incident in Chad where there was a group of charity workers from a French organization called Zoe's Ark, and they were arrested on the tarmac in Chad with an airplane of about 103 children. And the organization denies that they were trying to sell the children for adoption, but instead claimed that they were sending them to host families in France for the price of about 2,400 euros or something like that, which is basically about $3,500. And the group claimed that the children were from Darfur, Sudan, and were from, you know, war-torn areas, that they were orphans, they didn't have families. But When the children were interviewed later, it was discovered that they weren't from Sudan at all. They were actually from Chad and that they were not without families, that the aid workers had actually gone to their villages and spoke with families and said, we're going to take your children away to go to school and they're going to end up coming back one day. You know, do we have your permission to take them? And they removed the children from the homes and with no plan to send them back. These kinds of incidents are becoming more and more common. And the fact that this is 2007 that we're talking about, you know, this is not, even though I do feel like there's a direct connection, I mean, there's not, this is not like the baby lifts that were happening during the Vietnam War or the Korean War that were an actual concerted, vocal, visible effort to remove children, even though that has completely has its own problems around privilege and the savior complex. So these kinds of of removals and the trafficking of children are happening. So one of the things that my work is trying to do is to think about placing that also within a continuum. The other piece of my work, the thread that's running through it, is thinking about black women's identity and the construction of black women's bodies that appears in the discourse of adoption, particularly of adoption of African-American children, and the ways that slavery created stereotypes of black and scientific discourse created ideas about black women's bodies that have then been sort of implemented, of course, through the social welfare system and have really made the black woman a made the black woman more of a body that is simply providing a product for children? Yeah, children, a body that's simply providing a product for white families that are moneyed in a very similar way that they were providing slaves for slave masters. And I really am trying to make a, a correlation um, that I hope will work itself out as I'm writing. And I know that's really strong thing to say, and I know that a lot of folks are going to struggle with that, but the language is so similar, it's actually really scary. And what is exciting 
also in, in gender women's studies is that there's a lot of work now being done on reproductive labor and the technologies around mothering. And so some of that work informs my work as well. But it really is this thinking about how the black woman's body becomes a central figure inside um, the discourse of adoption. How can people get involved if they're interested in this or where can they get more information? There, it, AFAD has a website. Our website is afad.wordpress.com. It's A-F-A-A-D. There's all the information about the organization, about the work that we're developing and the work that we're doing right now is on the website. There's um, information about our board members, and people can feel free to contact me directly. Our phone number is on there and our emails as well, um, places to make donations. You can also become a supporting member. We look forward to answering any questions that you have. Yeah, are you blogging yeah. still? Or? I am blogging still. There's been a lot of really fun things happening on the blog and interesting things in terms of my own birth search. So if you're interested, the blog is a birth project at wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Lisa Marie. I totally appreciate being here. This was really fun. Me too. Yeah. You've been listening to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research every Monday from 12 until 1230 on KALX UC Berkeley 90.7. My name is Emily Ellers. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you have any comments or ideas for future guests, please don't hesitate. Feel free to email me at graduates.kalx at gmail.com. Again, that's graduates.kalx at gmail.com. Or leave a message for me here at the station at 642-KALX. Until next week, take care. (laughs) 